What thoughts and emotions did, did that conjure up for you? We could break into small groups and talk about what our expectations are for the end of the world. And that's why this is somewhat of a departure from what we do normally. We generally don't focus on end of days topics here in case you're visiting with us. But we want to really focus in, uh, really dial in on what the Bible says about getting ready for the end of the world. And uh, personally, I don't have a date that God has revealed to me. Uh, although I know it will be the Jesus will return the week after the Bears win the Super Bowl, but aside from that, <laughs> I have no expectations. I just want to clarify that. What I am going to disappoint you with, and what Chuck and John disappoint uh, will disappoint you with as well, as a lack of clarity as to the specific date that Jesus will return, the rapture will take place, the tribulation will begin in it, all of those things, um, quite frankly, remain somewhat of a fog to us. And yet what the Bible, interestingly, relentlessly and redundantly communicates is what we do while we wait. And you will not find a lot of books out on the subject that are bestsellers and going in that direction. The bestsellers go in the direction of determining what the signs of the times, the specific dates and epochs and eras are. And so uh, we're going to go against the grain of that somewhat, and hopefully that will not disappoint you. Um, but what do we do while we wait? Jesus only once extensively describes the end of days. In Matthew 24 and 25, and we're going to read a portion from 24, not 25. Uh, you'll hear that in, in uh, some of the weeks to come. But in chapter 24, he gives us an indication of some of the signs of the times. And in those two chapters, it is his definitive statement of the end of days. So if you've never read them, I'd encourage you to read them because that's where we begin. That's where we begin. Um, we're going to read together Matthew 24, 36 to 51, and Kaylin Sharp has volunteered lovingly to read for us. Kaylin, there she is. And so if you'll come up, and what we do here, as most of you know, is stand and face the middle of the room. It's not empty ritual. We stand in honor of God's word. We stand to face the middle of the room because we pray it's central to who we are as a worshiping community. So Kaylin, when you're ready, Matthew 24, 36 to 51. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be for the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding with their hand mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time at night the, theft would the thief would come, he would have kept watch and would not have let, him, uh, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master had put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, you will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is saying, is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware he will cut him into pe- he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where they where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth thanks so much Kaylin. you can have a seat by the way, I love that last verse, don't you? If you have parents, if you have first or second graders, maybe have them memorize that sometime this week. That's just a real edifying statement. Um, we're going to cover a number of topics in the next few weeks in this series, from the uh, Antichrist to uh, the final judgment, this new heaven and new earth of vision that John in Revelation tries to portray and, and really dial down into a perspective of, of the, from the Bible on end times. But I wanted to take an unscientific poll before we begin, and actually this, this really does matter because it somewhat shapes how we're going to approach the series. Uh, I'm going to ask you, and this is a moment for authenticity, don't succumb to peer pressure, okay, just be you. How many of you believe that the return of Jesus is imminent. It will be happening soon. Raise your hands and just keep them up. Be proud. Be proud. Okay, keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. I have 134. (laughs) Chuck, what do you think? Okay. A third. Uh, We did a series on Revelation several years ago, and the uh, same approximate number of people raised their hands. The same people, perhaps, raised their hands. And I just think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating. Um, Here's a few illustrations of why uh, Chuck, John, and myself felt we needed to head down this trail for the next couple of months. Um, We are incredibly preoccupied, many of us, with anything apocalyptic. Anything from doomsday uh, preppers to uh, latter-day prophets. In fact, I know for some of you this will be uh, somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek. For others, you're going to take notes and look up the website. But just to assist you, doomsday preppers, um, I found a website. It's called Vivos, V-I-V-O-S. It's a company offering underground disaster shelters, and that's what the website looks like. Now, the good news is they have structures. They look a lot like ex-military bunkers, but you can retrofit them with all the comforts of home and be self-contained, you from 50 to 100 people, for an entire year. Now, the price is not bad, and we could certainly negotiate. Uh, For $5,000, you would uh, reserve a spot in one of these bunkers. Did I tell you this is in South Dakota, so... Maybe I 
fail to say that. For $5,000, you can reserve a spot. For $35,000, you can be a co-owner of one of the bunkers. For $10,000, you can have your in-laws pick up, picked up and delivered there for an indeterminate amount of time. That's just a joke. That's not the truth. Um, this is what they say from the website and then about Vivos. Whether we want to believe it or not, we are on the cusp of an increase in number and magnitude of events that may in the twinkling of an eye change the world as we know it. They list a range of, and then this is concerning the website, they list a range of possible cataclysmic disasters including Armageddon, plagues, a solar kill shot, a supervolcanic eruption, major earth changes, killer asteroids and comets, uh, mega tsunamis, an economic meltdown, not to mention man-made threats, including nuclear explosions, a reactor meltdown, biological or chemical disasters, terrorism, or widespread anarchy. Anarchy. It's yours for $5,000. You may already have a spot. Another contemporary preoccupation with end times is end times prophecy. And I will guess that most of us have been exposed to at least one Latter-day prophet or end of days prediction. I'm just going to do a quick quiz and see if you can uh, recall or you're familiar with certain characters, certain personalities. The first picture is this. Anyone? It's Hal Lindsey. Now Hal Lindsey, perhaps before some of your times, wrote a book called the late great planet Earth. Remember back in the 70s? Uh, many of you, again, probably owned this book back in the day. He sold over f nearly 40 million copies worldwide. And there was a series of predictions and based on history and biblical insight. He, he, uh, and he really was a prophetic superstar back in the day. And one of the keys to his prophecy, to his book, was that he believed once the Jewish people reconstituted the nation of Israel in 1948, what Jesus said about his return was absolutely imminent. And Jesus said, and we're going to talk about this a little later, is truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. And so he believed that when the Jews uh, constituted the nation, the new state of Israel, there was a, within the next generation, Jesus' uh, return would be ushered in. Now, in, in Hebrew, in the Bible, a generation is 40 years. Pretty common understanding. Uh, the state reconstituted in 1948. I'll let you do the math. So from 1948 to 1988, said Hal Lindsey, the opportunity, the window opened for Jesus to return. 1988. Uh, what year is it? Point being, we're now in 2018, 70 years after the window opened. And again, I, I want to make sure you understand. I'm not going to dismiss or, dis, or demean, you know, godly people make, trying to make predictions. But understand what happened as a result of the book is everyone believed the return was imminent and lifestyles changed, priorities changed. And we're still waiting. Here's the concern. It's a classic example of a book or a movie one man's interpretation of the Bible, which somehow morphs into absolute truth. 
And Christians were absolutely, absolutely, and to this day, absolutely convinced of Hal Lindsey's views rather than leave room for what the Bible might have taught them itself. Second picture. Anyone? If you know, really shout it out. What? Thank you. There's a wonderful parting gift for you. <laughs> Not really, Pete. Because um, it's you. <laughs> this is Harold Camping, who actually is an ex-Christian Reformed Church, part of our tradition, pastor. His prediction for the end of the world uh, was May 21st, 2011. And as that date approached, believers began uh, communicating and, and uh, publicizing the, the anticipation of a rolling apocalypse, a rolling rapture that would take 24 hours to pass through each time zone until the entire world was horrendously affected and committed Christians would vanish from the earth. It's called, historically we call it the rapture. What's fascinating about the response to Harold Camping by the irreligious community is some took that prediction and planned a group of good riddance rapture parties on that very day. So no matter what happened on May 21st, 2011, this group of folks, these groups of folks felt it would personally be a win-win. Most were irritated at the intolerance exhibited by conservative Christians and thought the world would be at a better place if they were gone. On the other hand, if the rapture didn't take place, then they could make fun of the prediction, which like hundreds of predictions before it never materialized. Here's the concern. Our focus on the end of days is healthy. Our obsession and preoccupation with end of days compromises our ability to truly impact others in the way Jesus called us to influence. Last. David Mead. David Mead, he's a contemporary conspiracy theorist. And I don't have all the time to uh, unpack where he derived his theory, but he claimed that on September 23rd of last year, the world would end. And so as of 20, the 24th of September, David Mead simply claimed he'd gotten the date wrong. And actually, doomsday would occur on October 15th, less than a month later, last year. Now, you're probably asking yourself, where is David Mead today, and what predictions is he making? But again, using Scripture and the hidden Bible codes, which he claimed predicted September 23, 2017, he truly believed there was a series of catastrophic events that would eventually lead to the earth's demise. And once nothing happened on that day or in that day in October, he actually wrote this. He said, and I quote, it's possible at the end of October we may be able to enter into the seven-year tribulation period to be followed by a millennium of peace. Which could be true. It could be true. Again, the concern is that an individual theory based on not only Scripture but on scientific hocus-pocus has no validity. 
and costs the church credibility. Here's the dilemma. And again, back to the reason why we want to spend our time here. Um, and, and again, I'm saying respectfully for both ends of the spectrum, some of us are truly obsessed with this topic. We really are. And I understand. We all, we, I understand the issue. We're obsessed. We're preoccupied with this. There's others who could care less. Quite frankly, don't give a rip. Hear this stuff, dismiss this stuff, another crackpot, another Latter-day prophet. No, 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 no. We want to address both ends of that spectrum and come to some conclusion about what a healthy perspective is and look into the future. Because here's the deal. The end of the world is going to happen. That's what God's Word says. Where we will disagree is in the details and the timing. And so when we study the Bible on this topic, um, the emphasis towards the, the study of the end times, it's fascinating that repeatedly God and the authors of Scripture are much more concerned with what we do while we wait than predicting the actual arrival of the date. And this is Jesus' definitive prophetic statement on the topic, Matthew 24 and 25. And what happens is, if you're into this uh, Latter-day prophecy, there are passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and 1 Thessalonians and Zechariah and Revelation that all overlay in this equation, which creates confusion for most, certainty for a few. Let's dial down into Matthew 24 and read the definitive statement of what Jesus says about the end of days. This is, first of all, a temple prophecy, Matthew 24, 1 to 2. This, uh, these are verses prior to the verses we read this morning. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the temple buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus lived this, this moment perhaps 30-ish A.D. By 70 A.D., there was a, a revolt by the Jews. Uh, the Romans came in and put down the revolt and destroyed the temple down to the very stones. To this day, many of you have seen this in person, uh, it's unbelievable how massive these stones are. And yet the Romans took great painstaking care to knock down the entire wall. Some of the walls have been rebuilt but these are still the heaps of stones right outside the, the, mount, uh, of, uh, the Temple Mount at Jerusalem. So then Jesus from there says, uh, and these are Jesus' prophetic signs of the times. We're going to scroll through these fairly quickly. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, G 20, Matthew 24, 3, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will this happen? And that's the kicker. The $64 question to this very moment, when will this all happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This is the list. These are Jesus' statements. First of all, there will be false messiahs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes. Uh, and by the way, as you're checking off this list, you're going to think, now these were fairly true within every century since Jesus lives. Good point. Persecution and martyrdom. Uh, by the way, do you know which two nations are the greatest persecutors of Christians today? Feels like a, it's kind of a class. I don't mean to, well, anybody know? First, the top two countries, persecutors of Christians in the world today? 
Iran is a good guess, but it's not one of the top two. It's on the list. The second is Afghanistan. Do you know what number one is? North Korea. You may have heard of that country recently in the news. They imprison thousands and thousands of Christians routinely. Anyway, then there's apostasy, meaning people who used to prioritize faith no longer prioritize faith. People who attend church no longer attend church. There's false prophets. There's increased immorality and wickedness. And then the gospel, this is somewhat of a positive sign. The gospel is preached globally. Any of those signs sound familiar these days? Honestly, that's the dilemma. It creates part of the dilemma. But those are only the initial signs. There's a sign that follows that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. It sounds, ooh, it sounds horrific, and it is. Literally, those words are desecrating sacrilege, implying in the temple in Jerusalem, something or someone unholy is in the holy place, and this moment where that is that violation takes place will be accompanied by unprecedented distress. Now, it's interesting historically, kind of a historical timeout, that 160-some years before Jesus was born, um, the Greeks were the ruling uh, empire, and a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was nicknamed Antiochus the Madman, um, was in process of overthrowing the Jews and the people of Israel and superimposing Hellenism the, the Greek worldview on the Jewish people. And he entered the temple and offered a sacrifice on the altar in the temple. He offered a pig, pork, a sacrilegious, unholy offering. And then he set up some statue. Scholars believe perhaps it was the statue of Zeus in the inner, inner courts of the temple. It was what was called the abomination of desolation. Forty years after Jesus lived and died, that when the Romans were dealing with the Jewish uprising, they again entered the temple, tore down the inner courts, violated the holy with the unholy. Some scholars believe they set up Roman emblems throughout the temple as a violation of the religion. So those two historical moments um, are points in time that speak to this abomination of desolation. Those that believe the end of days and all of these signs are still going to be predicted are still awaiting that final abomination of desolation. They're saying it hasn't happened yet, it's happening in the future. And then cosmic disturbances. The sun is darkened. You saw the picture in the, the video prior to the message. The moon has stopped giving light. The stars are falling. Cosmic disturbances. And all of that will take place. So says Jesus. And then, the Son of Man. The term that Jesus uses most often in referencing himself returns. Matthew 24 says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Here's how he will arrive on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other, across all of the time zones, perhaps. So Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven, 
gathers the elect, those who believe and follow. But here's the X factor in this whole passage. It's a statement that Jesus concludes with in this section. Matthew 24, 34 says this. Truly I tell you, meaning this is, I really want to underscore this point, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, how do you read that? Because how you read that determines how you interpret this entire chapter. Now, if you take that literally as in the first century generation of Jews and Jewish Christians that are reading it won't, won't die, that generation will not pass before all of these things are fulfilled, then what Jesus had to say had already been fulfilled in the first century. And quite frankly, that's the slight majority scholarly opinion. But there are others, and many, many American Christians who believe that this generation implies this generation. The generation reading this passage in the moment. And so what this generation means, it, it has applied to every generation who ever reads this until Jesus returns. Therein lies some of the confusion, some of the uh, mixed perspectives. And then Jesus says, in verse 40 and 41, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. There's a movie, I don't know, a couple decades ago now perhaps, old, a book, became a movie called Left Behind. And the author of the book uh, created the entire premise of the book based upon this passage in particular. And so here again is one of those second coming dilemmas. We, we just read about the Son of Man coming in all his glory and then suddenly what we call it, historically Christians call it the rapture and they sound as if either they're two different events separated by time, or they may be one and the same. And that becomes the point of conversation. Here again, the second coming dilemma. Is it going to be unexpected or is it going to be predictable? Is it business as usual or worldwide apocalypse? All in favor say, you, get the, you understand, if you start really dialing into this, there's a growing lack of clarity rather than growing clarity. The best phrase I read in the last few weeks in prepping for this is someone who said, trying to predict all of this is like trying to nail jello to a tree. And I'm not sure I'm gonna, you're going to be any farther ahead after that portion of this time together. Some of you are well-versed in this stuff, maybe too well-versed. But what Jesus and the rest of Scripture is relentless in communicating. It's not about when, it's about how we live while we wait. And that's where we want to focus. The key questions of 20, Matthew 24 and 25, first of all, are how long do we wait? The answer, until God moves, until God acts. And he says, Jesus says in verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Are you checking this out? Not even Jesus himself but only the Father. No one knows. 
And so for those who attempt to reduce the second coming to a formula, to a code of dates and events and situations, just be aware that they are not the first, nor will they be the last to be wrong. And again, I'm not dismissing the insights. Every century, especially in the last decade of a century since Jesus left the planet, Christians have believed now is the time. And nothing we do, nothing we say will encourage God to speed up his providential timeline or facilitate a change in his infinite plan. It's his. How do we wait? Jesus says, with urgency and awareness, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. Keep watch, he says in verse 42. Be ready in verse 44. We never know. They've been saying that since the first century as well. But the point is we want to live every day of our lives with the understanding that this day until Jesus returns is the ultimate gift. And it begs the question, With what level of urgency do we live out a day? Do we live out a week? I deal with a lot of folks terminally ill, and many of them are no longer with us. Many of them have beat terminal illness, cancers. But one thing almost without exception I learned from them, this day really, really matters. There's a lesson in that that connects that mentality to the topic of the day. And so often we, we skew our understanding of living with urgency. I, I've got bad news for you today. My TV broke yesterday. My TV broke. Our TV broke. And in God's infinite wisdom, it will provide us an opportunity to purchase another Somewhat larger, if God wills it. (laughs) And what the passage isn't telling us about urgency is I've got to run out today, which I might, and take a look at TVs because Jesus may return tomorrow. I'm I'm not going to pay cash. I've I've got purchases to make. Jesus is coming back. Uh, If Jesus comes back before the deadline and my loans are due, that's not what we're talking about at all. Urgency begs the question, this very moment, what did I do yesterday that really mattered to God? What am I planning tomorrow and this week that's going to make a difference in the lives of the people that God has placed in my path so uniquely? What about my commitment to my family, my friends, my willingness to serve? If we're to live urgently, with awareness, those become not just haphazard thoughts of a Christian, those become the priorities. How do we wait with urgency and awareness? And then this final question, what do we do while we wait? Jesus says, prioritize being faithful and wise. And here's the story. It's a parable. 
from Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, big time, truly, I tell you, verily, verily, it's a big underscored statement. He will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servant to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he's not aware of. He will, and again, if you have kids here under the age of 15, cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, lighten up. We're only talking about the end times here. There's something crucial to our understanding of the end of days, to the return of Jesus, that he's trying to communicate that this urgency thing, this being faithful and wise is truly more important than perhaps we realized. More, much more important than trying to find the chronology of the hidden code in the Bible that gives us an exact date or season, no. Be faithful and wise. Be obedient. Be discerning. Be faithful in all that it means as a follower of Jesus, in all that God has entrusted with you, and he's entrusted you with a lot. By the way, the next chapter, chapter 25, outlines the how we, uh, what we do while we wait. And there's an interesting parable, parable there called the parable of the talents. You ever heard that parable? It's the follow-up to this statement. There's going to be heaven to pay for those who are faithful with what he's entrusted us with. And being wise with all God entrusts us with. Personal resources, our our family's spiritual priorities, how I live out my life today and tomorrow and this week for Jesus. What we do as a body of believers to prepare for the future, not looking for the end zone, but enjoying the journey together. Getting ready for the end of the world is fundamentally about learning how to live while we wait. And the key to anticipating the end of the world, it's so simple. Do you know Jesus? That's the fulcrum, the crux of the matter. Do you know Jesus personally? Because that shapes everything else. Many of us claim allegiance to Jesus. We stood and professed faith in him. We call ourselves followers of Jesus. This is the passage that reminds us what matters most as followers of Jesus. But what we have, my friends, is the assurance of someday, one day, being reunited with all those who've gone before us, all those who will follow us in the presence of that throne room that Jason led us through this morning. You know, I don't want to die, but part of me can't wait. And if you've never made that commitment to Jesus, with all due respect, it won't be rocket science. It's just a simple volitional act of the will saying, I I believe. I want to believe in this Jesus. I want him to clean up my past and prepare a new future. I want the assurance that whatever the future holds, he holds the future and he holds my, my eternity. 
And listen, my friends, when those final moments unfold, and maybe we'll witness it, maybe we won't, those who believe in Jesus are promised they will be a part of the most amazing historical moment in all of time and history as Jesus comes back and gathers the elect, the believers, from the four winds of the earth. And we'll spend eternity together. That's why regardless of how the events at the end of the world unfold, don't ever forget, followers of Jesus, you have an amazing future. Let's pray. Father, just allow us to put in perspective this entire conversation about the end of the world. Lord, we don't want to be filled with gloom and doom and pessimism and cynicism. Fill us with the hope and the optimism of your spirit. Help us to see the visions that are portrayed in Scripture as our visions. Gathered in the throne room of heaven with all the saints singing praises for eternity. Father, prepare us to live in a world that is increasingly complex, in some ways increasingly dark, but Lord, don't ever allow us to succumb to the darkness or worse yet, the apathy of living in the darkness. Father, we bless you. We thank you for the amazing stories of your word. And Lord, again, help us to learn how to live while we wait for your return. In Christ's name we pray, amen.